This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. I feel like there's this idea in the creator economy that success is democratized, that if you put in the work and stay consistent, you'll gain your audience. And of course, that can be true. But for many marginalized creators, success often feels like a steeper hill to climb than it should be, with harmless content being flagged or mysterious drops in followers or even rumors of shadow banning. Discoverability on these platforms is absolutely crucial for creators to build their followings and, of course, build their income. But what happens when the algorithms powering discoverability seem to be working against you or don't see you at all? This is Creative Control. I'm your host, Casey Finey. Each week, I'll be unpacking the driving forces and people shaping the creator economy and what it all means for its future. Imagine this. You're posting content as you normally do, but you start to notice that your follower account seems stuck. What might explain it, but is still pretty weird, are people messaging you saying that they had to refollow your account or that they don't see your content in their feeds anymore. Well, that's exactly what happened to trans TikTok creator Adia Danielle. My account would be stuck on 500K and I would see everyone else growing and I'd just be stuck. And I think I was at 500K for like a year and then it just stopped and it continued to grow. And now I'm at 1.5 million and it's stuck and it's been like a year and a half and people are still messaging me and being like, I had to refollow you, what's going on, or I never see you anymore. Tons of message like that. But Adia's troubles didn't stop there. One day last year, she went to open her account and she couldn't. She was locked out. I had done nothing wrong. I had never violated anything. They wouldn't talk to me. I felt like they were ignoring me. And then BuzzFeed reached out to me and we did an article together about how TikTok is removing trans creators and stuff like that. And then they put my account back. The BuzzFeed article details not only Adia's issues on TikTok, but other trans creators who have faced similar problems. What usually happens is perfectly normal content somehow gets flagged as inappropriate. What's even more frustrating is when these already marginalized creators attempt to educate or defend themselves, it's their content that often winds up in the crosshairs. I used to respond to people that would make videos about me And then I would explain and be like, you know, just educate people about the trans topic and how they're wrong for saying this. And this is like transphobia. And my video would get taken down for bullying and harassment. But their video that was literally transphobia would still be there. Last year, I did like a trans joke. I don't remember exactly what it was, but this girl had made a video in response to my joke. And she said, in the beginning, she goes, sir, I mean, ma'am, I mean, sir, like that. And I responded to her. I just basically told her what was wrong and what good points she had. And the way she started her video was horrible. And my video got taken down for bullying, but hers was still there. Of course, the trans community isn't the only one affected by this. In 2019, TikTok actually admitted to suppressing videos from disabled queer and fat creators, which they later said was done to mitigate cyberbullying. 
Last year, TikTok users started noticing censorship of the phrase Asian women, which the platform later stated was an error. Also last year, creator Ziggy Tyler uploaded a video showing how he was denied from putting in phrases like Black people or Black voices in his creator marketplace bio. But phrases like white supremacy were allowed. We're tired. We're tired. Okay? Black success. Boom. Inappropriate content. Anything Black related is inappropriate content. But let me... Black can't say it. Let's take that out of the equation. Supporting white success. The same adjectives I was using to describe us on this app. It's allowed. It's allowed. White voices accepted. $500. Um, Pro-white accepted. $500. But let me say pro-black. A threat. I think it's clear these platforms are aware there's an issue of content being flagged or suppressed. And to what extent it's happening and how it affects creators is something Dr. Brooke Duffy has been researching. Dr. Duffy is an associate professor at Cornell University, and she published a paper in July really digging into how algorithms on social media platforms can render some creators practically invisible. So to start, I asked her how she would describe the current relationship between platforms and marginalized creators. It's like a meritocratic framing, right? If you have engaging and unique and original content, you can get seen. That draws so many people to pursue a creative career across the landscape. But at the same time, I found that this entire ecosystem is just kind of shrouded in uncertainty. And so part of it is forms of an uncertainty that have long been associated with a creative career, right? You know, there's this idea that these careers are completely new and novel and unprecedented. And, and actually, you know, I think in some ways they have a lot in common with the traditional culture industries, whether we're talking about music or TV or magazines or being a novelist. You know, there's always been uncertainty in these, these careers. But what is fundamentally different is the role of algorithms. And I, I can't think of anything in the traditional industries that plays quite the same sort of destabilizing role as these black boxed algorithmic systems that that govern the careers of people on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, and so on. And for your study, you spoke to, you interviewed 30 creators. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what type of creators you were looking for and what did, and what were they telling you? Like, what did you find after speaking with them? So what we wanted to do with this study, and um, I want to give a shout out to my research collaborator, Colton Meissner. We wanted to speak to people across platforms because the reality is, even if you're a TikToker or a YouTuber, in order to mitigate some of this uncertainty, you usually have a smaller audience across different platforms. You know, TikTok may go away tomorrow. And so, yeah, I want to maintain an audience on YouTube. So we spoke to people across platforms, but also across genres. So we spoke to comedians, we spoke to people who do educational content, who do travel, who do fashion and beauty, gaming, tech. Um, we really wanted a broad swath of creative careers to get a really sense of the general landscape. And we found that their experiences are so centrally focused on this ideal of visibility and perhaps more so the, the fear of being invisible. And so what does this look like? Well, thinking about the types of content that are going to not be punished by the algorithm, one of the clever ones is people were fearful that they would get banned if they wrote sex, S-E-X, because of content moderation rules. So they would use terms like S-E-G-G-S um, 
or another favorite. Algo speak. Yeah. yeah or al- algorithms was one of my favorite rather than algorithms. <laughs> um, <laughs> these clever ways to hope that your content gets seen by audiences without getting punished by content moderation roles, which are highly suspect and difficult to discern. There was a lot of unpredictability in terms of what goes viral, what doesn't go viral, uh, what are the best hashtags to use, what's the combination of music versus voice, what's going to get people seen. But also there was a lot of experimentation. I mean, this is one of the main themes that cuts across all of my research is how much work goes into this. A lot of them would do this kind of reverse engineering experimentation where they would try out a certain outfit or a certain hashtag one day and then compare it with what they did next day to see what does well. That's kind of the euphemism for garnering an audience is doing well. And some of the findings were, you know, what you might expect. There's this sense of unpredictability in terms of like what time of day and what else is going on and what the trends are. But then there were some really alarming things where people would tell us that creators of color in particular would say, okay, well, I posted a video very similar to this white creator and um, they saw this traction, whereas I didn't, or my content was concealed, whereas theirs wasn't. And there was this kind of sense of conservatism that we heard about from queer creators and creators of color in particular, which was just, we had a sense of this because of the media attention, but to hear it from the creators themselves was very alarming. What do you think that says about the relationship between creators and these platforms, that there is this kind of undercurrent of distrust (laughs) or this undercurrent of it being kind of precarious, as you mentioned, I love that word that you use because it, there always seems to be this idea of something isn't right. I know something's not right. And now it's like the burden is on me to figure it out. So what do you think that says about the relationship? Just the idea that these creators are doing their own folk theories and doing their own tests. What does that say about the relationship between them and the platforms? That's such a great way to phrase it. And um, what does it say about the relationship? I mean, it's a highly uneven relationship. And Um, one that differs from traditional employment places in marked ways. There's no direct line of communication between most creators and the platforms. And so creators have no choice but to kind of rely upon folk theories and knowledge sharing. And most of them are part of very vibrant communities of other creators. I mean, it's a very kind of supportive place for a lot of creators where they have no other places to ask for help or support. I mean, people would tell me over and over again, like, I got flagged, my content was banned, I got locked out of my account. And so I reached out to TikTok or Instagram or YouTube, and nobody got back to me. Or it would take 24 hours and a bot would get back to me. And we heard consistently, like, yeah, this entire platform is just run by bots. I could not speak to a person. And so in a traditional workplace environment, you know, you want to get recourse or information there's a person you can speak with and it doesn't work the same way in these platform environments. And why do you think that is? Like, why do you think these already marginalized groups seem to be targeted in this way on these platforms? Not even necessarily targeted, just being invisible because being a target would mean like you're in the crosshairs and we see you. But the issue, as you mentioned, is just like this idea of like not being seen. So why do you think that is for marginalized creators? Well, we wanted to get a sense of how they 
understood it. I mean, the reality is it's a combination of tech and humans. You know, we can't just say that there's these invisible algorithms that are coming in and hiding people because there's people that program these, of course. Absolutely. And so that's part of it. The other part of it is the algorithms, which are invisible to us of audiences. And so we don't fully know what happens. And so we wanted to get a sense of like how creators understood this process. And some of them felt that they were very knowledgeable about the inscrutability of the algorithms. And some said, I think that the people that are designing and programming these algorithms have various forms of bias structured in. And so, you know, they said that they're not going to give me the same level of attention as they are a more quote unquote mainstream creator. So there's the potential bias of the programmers. Others felt that it was a kind of, I don't want to use the term glitch because I think that suggests that it's unintentional, but the technology worked in ways that were disadvantageous to creators. All right. I reached out to TikTok about this issue of creators feeling like their content is being targeted, and I specifically brought up Ziggy Tyler and Adia Danielle's complaints. So let's run through this because it's actually kind of interesting. All right, so when it comes to Ziggy Tyler not being able to use phrases like Black Lives Matter or Black Success, a TikTok spokesperson said those phrases didn't violate any policies. They were erroneously flagged by the platform's hate speech safeguard because, in Ziggy's paragraph, he had the word audience. Now, follow me here, because apparently that hate speech safeguard saw the word die in the word audience. And when it also saw black and people in the same paragraph, it thought it was hate speech content. According to the spokesperson, that level of overcorrection has since been fixed. And as far as Adia Danielle feeling as if her content gets flagged because she's trans, TikTok spokesperson assured me that they don't remove or moderate accounts based on gender identity. But the spokesperson also mentioned TikTok does have a team of human moderators that are prone to make mistakes just like its AI moderation. In a statement, they said, quote, TikTok is a special place because of the diverse and inspiring voices in our community, and we care deeply about creating a welcoming and supportive environment for them. We aim to be transparent about our policies and are committed to seeing they are fairly and consistently enforced, end quote. Still with me? Fantastic, because I also reached out to Meta and asked a spokesperson why content from certain creators on Instagram and Facebook don't seem to get the same level of attention as other creators. And they said, quote, We recognize we can do more to help people understand when their accounts aren't being recommended, and we're in the early stages of testing a new feature that will allow people to check if their accounts are eligible to be recommended to others on Instagram, why they may be ineligible for recommendations, and what they can do about it. End quote. Okay, all of that is well and good, but what it all boils down to, at least how I understand it, is content moderation is far from perfect. And these platforms have a ways to go in helping people really understand how their algorithms work. After hearing stories like Adia's and talking with Dr. Duffy, it got me thinking about what more inclusive moderation would look like on a social media platform. And after the break, we'll hear from one woman who's wondering the same thing and building the AI to make it a reality. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. (laughs) 
So we know there's an issue of content moderation disproportionately affecting marginalized creators, but how platforms are addressing the issue hasn't been good enough for Annie Brown. Annie is a founder of Reliable, a content moderation system that aims to be more inclusive for creators. Annie is also the founder of Lips, an Instagram-like alternative powered by Reliable's AI that counts as many as 20,000 monthly active users. So sure, Lips may not be operating at the scale of a TikTok or Instagram, but that may be the point. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. I'll let Annie explain, starting with what does good content moderation look like? I think it's such an early thing because I think people to this point have just said, if we don't want exploitive content online, this is just going to be a side effect of it. You're going to basically whitewash the internet. And what Reliable developed in my theory is that good content moderation is contextual. Now, that being said, like we don't have at this time in our lives, AI doesn't even really exist, right? It's just machine learning. And so contextual AI is still a ways away. But if we're trying to move towards that or an AI that is contextual, then that means different viewpoints. So good moderation to me and the way that we built Reliable is actually a bottom-up moderation system. So starting with the community. Okay. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So, I mean, what does that look like exactly? I mean, you say the bottom-up moderation system starts with the community. So how does that look like in practice? So for example, the Lips example, that social media network, which Reliable is the system that's moderating that now, essentially you approve the community guidelines, you have a one-time application process to post, and that basically says, here's what I want to post, here's the kind of content I want to post, and then um, from that, that person, when they're allowed to post, they're also allowed to start labeling data. They're allowed to start creating hashtags that maybe didn't exist. I have a background in, in feminist studies, in black studies, and you know, I could say, well, I'm very aware of these things, so I'm going to create all the tags and I'm going to create what a moderation system looks like. But there's still going to be gaps. There's still going to be discrimination that comes from me, that comes from our team. And so what this does I sort of liken it to the reCAPTCHA system from Google where like, you know, the AI doesn't know what a light looks like. What Reliable does is it says, well, I don't know what erotic art looks like. And the users are saying, well, I've been an erotic artist for 20 years. So here's what it looks like. Let me label all these things. Long, long story short, essentially, is that good moderation is a combination of the users, moderators, and machines to create greater context, greater nuance that then makes the algorithms, moderation systems more accurate. Because until you do, you're going to have these huge gaps. And just one example is that currently 73% of LGBT content online is flagged as inappropriate, which means it's not getting monetized. It's not being seen. And so you can just imagine, you know, the internet that we have now, how much more exciting and diverse it could be if we have more nuance and more participation from marginalized communities in the moderation system. And I'm glad you brought that up because 
whenever we hear instances of creators, uh, especially from marginalized groups, you know, like LGBTQ+, content creators of color, usually the, the response from the platform is usually something like, oh, we did this because we didn't want this group to be harassed or bullied. I mean, like TikTok has been in the crosshairs for this numerous times. I mean, it's just like, it just never fails that creators will be like, hey, I'm noticing that I can't use this word or like my content was, you know, flagged for, I didn't do anything. I wasn't like following the community guidelines. And it's always, oh, we did it with your best interest in mind. And so when you read these stories of these creators coming forward saying my content is being treated differently and you hear the responses from the platforms like what is your reaction i think that that's the lazy way and it's the easy way i'll give you an example so the hashtag body love which was used primarily for plus size uh, women to you know celebrate their bodies it was part of the fat liberation movement that tag depending on the day that you're on it is just blocked out. You can't even find that. So if you type that into Instagram, and it depends on the day because it's this weird algorithm they have, right? But essentially, if you type that in on a certain day, it might come up with a thing that says, oh, hashtags or posts with this hashtag are limited because some violate our community guidelines. To me, wiping out that hashtag is a lazy approach instead of saying, okay, what's happening with this hashtag that our computer or our moderation system doesn't recognize the difference between somebody posting a self-love post about their body and somebody posting pornographic content. I mean, the problem is, is that to one, educate the moderators that are, are currently doing the content of the the difference of that, because in some ways, you know, maybe I could look at that or you could look at that and very clearly see it, but in some ways it's subtle. And so they would basically have to revamp their current moderation system to do that. And that's why I don't think they're doing it to protect people because they're what they're trying to convince marginalized users is there's not a middle way. They're trying to say, oh, this is the way it is. This is the way the internet is. Sorry. But the reality is there is another way that involves bringing feminist theory, that involves bringing Black studies, that involves bringing all these philosophies that we know work to help you distinguish between empowerment and exploitation. But to bring those into moderation systems is going to be work. And what we're trying to do at Reliable is do that work so that hopefully you know, on the communities that we moderate, we'll be able to have that. And maybe one day we'll be a leader in helping develop those technologies for these larger platforms. Do you see a situation where there is external pressure to make these platforms think about inclusive moderation and think about these issues in a more thoughtful way? It's a hard question because it's one of those things where it's like, and this is a question I've been struggling with since undergrad, you know, do you make change from within or do you create your own separate quote unquote society or, or platform? And I think it's going to have to be a combination of both. I think it's going to have to be continuing pressure on these platforms. I think it's going to have to be legislation, but not maybe more legislation. I think it's actually going to have to be like removal of some legislation because 
a lot of this wave of extra heavy moderation was actually triggered by FOSTA-SESTA, those laws that came out. And I think some people say, I think a lot of, if you talk to a tech representative from a big tech company, they might say, oh, well, we had to do this moderation because FOSTA-SESTA has our hands tied. But I think what the reality is, is that that FOSTA-SESTA gives these platforms an excuse to push off users that they don't necessarily want on their platforms that much. It's just going to be this slow erasure of marginalized content from the platform. But then I think there does need to be alternatives. And I think that people are realizing maybe it doesn't have as much quote unquote reach, but it's getting to the point on platforms where even a platform like Lips that has 20,000 monthly active users, a lot of the users that have switched from Instagram to Lips have actually found that they get more sales and more followers and more subscribers in a shorter amount of time because the algorithm and the shadow banning has become so bad on these other platforms. What Reliable is trying to do is frame it not just from a PR standpoint of you want to be a more inclusive platform, but also from a technological standpoint where it's like, well, if we're really wanting to advance AI and we're really wanting to see the existence of contextual AI, then we have to have this more bottom-up approach of how we categorize visual and textual data. And what progress are you seeing at Reliable? Like, give me some hope here. Like, because I feel like, you know, I'm excited that I reached out to you because I want there to be more companies thinking about these issues. And so I would love, I know you're working with Lips, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about the progress that you're, that you're making in this really kind of, it shouldn't be a massive endeavor, but it's from all that we've been talking about, it sounds like it is. So what progress have you seen so far? I think that's the exciting thing about Reliable is that it is going to be, you know, a long-term endeavor in that, like I said, I think like, I would love to have Reliable be this space that's an incubator for, like a space for actually building feminist, inclusive technologies that are needed because it's a, it's a whole infrastructure. We just launched our pre-seed round and we have a lead investor and it's looking like we're going to close come this uh, fall. So that's really exciting and means that we're going to then have the resources we need to move into this more advanced technology. Because what we've seen and what we've been able to demonstrate is that when you bring users into the moderation process, when you bring more inclusive thinking, users really are excited about that and they participate in that and that, you know, we can moderate a community of 20,000 people with just two person moderators. And that's without large scale machine learning. There's some, you know, automation in there, but now moving on to this future, we're really excited because we're going to be able to build these more advanced technologies that you know, we hope are going to be really, um, really impactful. And I'd also say that, like, we've had really good luck in finding advisors and supporters that are well-connected in the industry as well. So, like, some of our advisors were formerly head of policy at Google. And what they've said is that Google kind of gave up on this (laughs) a while ago. They said, this is really hard. This is really complicated. And I think also they just didn't have the feminist theory, black studies theory to understand what the solution actually was. And so our advisors are really excited about what Reliable is doing because it's sort of picking up where a lot of these 
big tech companies gave up. One of our advisors was also formerly at TikTok. And so we've got the connections, we've got the resources. So I'm really excited for the next 12 months of what we're going to be able to build. I think what Annie is building with Reliable is so important to the future of the creator economy. I don't feel as if these major platforms have any specific vendetta against marginalized creators. It just seems to be an issue of not enough forethought in building out moderation systems to be more inclusive. And maybe there's not enough incentive for these platforms to really think about this specific issue because they know creators want to be on their platforms. That's where most audiences and revenue are, right? But if I may pretend to be a fortune teller for a second, please indulge me. I do see a situation where smaller platforms like Lips become the go-to for even more creators. Just like we saw the rise of the micro-influencer, maybe we'll see a rise of micro-platforms where it'll be easier for creators to be seen. That's going to do it for this episode of Creative Control. Make sure you subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcast. You know the drill by now. And make sure you rate and comment as well, because we always love to hear from you. Fast Company podcasts are produced by Avery Miles, Blake Odom, and Matt Toder. Editing and sound design is by Nicholas Torres. Our executive producer is Joshua Christensen. Deputy Editor David Litsky provided editorial oversight for this episode, as well as Senior VP of Entertainment Scott Meebus. <laughs>